Please stand as you're able. Scripture this morning as we look at the cross is Luke, the 23rd chapter, beginning in verse 26 and going through verse 31. As the soldiers led him away, they seized a man named Simon of Cyrene who had come in from the country, and they put Jesus' cross on him and made him walk behind Jesus. A large group of people were following, and a number of women who wept and wailed. Turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the days are coming when you will say, Blessed are the women who are childless. Blessed are the wombs who never bore. Blessed are the breasts that never nursed. For they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. If they do these things while the wood and the tree is green, what will they do when it is dry? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. If they do these things when the tree is green, what will they do when the wood is dry? I've read that passage. It's, it's, uh, tip, it's only found in Luke a number of times. I've never really thought much about it. But in recent years, it started to jump out at me, and I wondered what it meant. And now I guessed, at least I thought I knew what it meant. I thought it meant something like this, that if you can't follow Jesus and, and walk with him uh, in times that are good or green, then when the times are dry and difficult, then you won't be able to follow him and you'll fall away easily. And uh, when I did the sermon title about uh, two months ago, that's kind of where I was by asking the question, if we don't follow him now, when will we do it? It reminded me of a story about a pastor who's going to call on a parishioner who's having surgery. It's not life-threatening surgery, but it's serious. And as, as the pastor enters the room, uh, the parishioner says, pray for me, pray for me. I'm so worried about this. Pray for me, please. And call the church and have them pray as well. And the pastor said, I looked at the tray that they put food on that goes over the bed. And he said, on that tray of the man that was pleading for help was a field and stream, another sports magazine, National Enquirer, people. He said, I looked at that stack. There was no Bible. There was no devotional book. He said, no prayer book. He said, I don't think there were 10 calories on the entire tray. And so the question is, if you're not really following and having faith while you can, what will happen when it becomes difficult? And that's pretty much what I thought this passage meant. But I have to tell you this morning, I was wrong. Now, I know you're wondering, oh, great, how many other times has he been wrong? And he hasn't told us. Try not to think about that. Instead, let's think about this first. Let me tell you where I went wrong. There are two cardinal things, at least, that you need to do with every passage of biblical text that you're trying to interpret. First one is this. You need to pay attention to the audience that, uh, to whom it's originally addressed. So I need to think about the women in Jerusalem, and I didn't really take them into account. The second thing is that you never, never, never take one verse out of context, even if the verse is as interesting as if they do these things when the tree is green, what will they do when it is dry? You never take it out by itself. You always look at it with the verses around it. 
So having done those two things, I've actually sort of changed my mind about what I think Jesus is saying in this most interesting, say, uh, a quote on his way to the cross. If they do this when the tree is green, what are they going to do when it is dry? And here's what I think he's saying. I think what he's saying to the women is, you got it all wrong. You do not have the appropriate perspective. You think I'm the victim, but you and your children are really the victims. And if you start to think about this green and dry on trees and wood, you begin to start to understand what Jesus is addressing here. First of all, green, uh, as I originally thought, probably had something to do with present days, and then wood would dry as it goes along, so maybe it would be somewhere in the future. And, and, and that is one possible meaning. Another possible meaning is the green tree could be that Jesus is innocent. Uh, because you know what the Romans did to people who were guilty, they put them on a dry piece of wood. And they would crucify him. So maybe he's saying that if they do this to an innocent man, what will they do to the guilty man? But I think really what he's after is this. Green trees are not particularly combustible. You throw them on a fire and they're not going to burn. But you take a dry piece of wood and throw it onto a fire, it's going to burn. And there was a group of people in Jerusalem who were known for their burning for the Lord. Their zeal for the Lord. They were also considered hotheads. Uh, and they were the group of people who would put forth men like Barabbas and say, uh, this guy's our leader. He will free us from the Romans. They advocated violent revolt against the Romans. And they would use any means necessary, including terrorism, to make their desires come true, to free Israel from the Roman Empire. And the people who did these things had a name. They were called zealots. They were particularly known as hotheads or wood burners. Uh, they were extremely combustible. But they took their name from uh, a strange little story in the Older Testament in Numbers 25. And, and the issue is Israel is uh, escaped through the Red Sea. They're trying to be established as a people. And one of the problems they're running into is the Israelites are marrying non-Israelite pagan people who happen to practice child sacrifice and temple prostitution. So one of the things that God uh, wants to do is to, is to stop this practice uh, because it's leading people astray. Well, one guy, his name is Phineas, decides to take this into his own hands. And so he goes into the marriage chamber where an Israelite man has just married a pagan Midianite woman. And he takes a spear and runs them both through. And the Bible's comment on this was that Phineas was zealous for the Lord. And so there was a group of people in Jesus' day demanding similar purity. And instead of the Midianites, they wanted by violence and whatever means necessary to get rid of the Romans, and they called themselves zealots. You may even realize that Jesus had at least one zealot. His name was Simon as one of his 12 disciples. And some people believe that Judas, who was from Iscariot, which is the only zealot headquarters in uh, the southern part of the country in Judah, um, some, many people believe that he was a zealot as well. But their tactics, Jesus never approved of. So one of the things he's saying to the women is this. That if they do this to me and I'm not a hothead and I'm innocent, what are they going to do when they get a hold of a bunch of hotheads? What's going to happen to you and to your children? Basically, Jesus is looking at the women and saying, one day this thing's going to blow. One, thing, this, one day this is going to be a conflagration that is out of control. 
And do you know what happens in those kind of conflagrations? It's only the innocent who suffer, not the ones who start it. Not the ones who advocate the overthrow. Not the ones who advocate violence as a means to solve all disputes. They don't get caught up into it in the same way. It's going to be the women and the children. They need to be crying for themselves, Jesus said, because the innocent usually suffer in this. Think about it for a moment. I mean, who in, the, who in here has not seen the picture from Syria of the man who, when the uh, sarin gas uh, bomb hit, goes door to door to try to rescue people, gets back to his own house and finds the two lifeless bodies of his nine-month-old twins. He didn't send the missile. Somebody else did, and yet he suffered. Think of this story. I knew a, a scholar that uh, studied uh, in a Ph.D., postgraduate program, rather, after his Ph.D. in Germany. One of the interesting things is that for the last 150 years, the, the Germans have actually been um, uh, head and shoulders above everybody else in New Testament scholarship, especially up until about the 1970s, which made the things that happened in the 1930s and 40s all the more strange to those of us who are Christians. But anyway, in the 1970s, for postdoctoral work, this guy goes, and he stays with a pastor and scholar whose name is Hans. And he looks on at a picture above the mantle uh, and, and Hans, on the mantle above Hans's fireplace and he sees a woman and two children. And he looks and he, he's seen Hans's wife and it doesn't look like the same person, but he doesn't want to ask. He doesn't want to say anything. So finally the guest says to his host Hans, tell me about that picture. Oh, said Hans, that is my first wife. And our children. And Hans tells the story that during World War II, he's on the fire watch at the church. He's on the fire brigade in case a bomb hits. He's to try to make sure that the, the church doesn't burn down. Sure enough, a bomb hits in the pavement outside the church. Hans is thrown to the ground. He's knocked unconscious. When he comes to, he sees that the church is fine, but the parsonage where he lives, his wife and two children, is on fire. So he goes and rushes to try to push the door in to rescue them. But unfortunately, in falling to the ground, he's broken both of his wrists. And he pushes, and the door doesn't move. He didn't start that war. He didn't, in 1933, decide that he wanted to rule the country and annex all the countries around him. He never sent a bomb or fired a bullet. Jesus knows that if the hotheads get control, it will be the women and the children who suffer so he says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Sometimes we have to wonder when uh, innocent people suffer. And I think we're tempted sometimes to say, where's God? And, and blame God for it. But it's like Jesus has already anticipated that. And, uh, and Jesus is letting, uh, he's letting the women know here that it won't be God's fault if this happens. This will be the combustible people. This will be the hotheads. The religious hotheads will bring this to a fire. I'm reminded of a great rabbi who was asked after the Holocaust, have you had a crisis of faith? And he said, in God, no. But in humanity, yes. And then he said, I remembered something that as Jews we've been taught, which is this, that it's more important to know that God believes in us than it is for us to believe in God. And that God believes in humanity much more than we do. So he said, yes, I've had a crisis of faith, but I've 
I work on believing in humanity. I think in this passage, Jesus shows his faith in humanity because one of the interesting things I think he does is by asking this question at the end, he's not saying to the women, this is a foregone conclusion. He's saying, if this happens, then what? And then by encouraging them to weep with their children, he's giving the women something to do with their children. He's not being fatalistic. He's saying, there's still time to raise your kids in a way that they will not be combustible. Or if I can put it another way with not trying to be flippant, one of the things Jesus is saying to the women at the cross is, Mama, don't let your babies grow up to be zealots. Don't let them be hotheads. Don't let them believe that violence is the religious means of solving differences and difficulties. And he's giving them a task. He's empowering them that if they can do something in the years ahead with their children, maybe, just maybe, this combustion can be avoided. I'm reminded of the great Fred Craddock who said, it is true that we worship a God of power, but it is also true that we worship a God of restrained power. For whatever reasons, God doesn't zap a lightning bolt from heaven or snap a finger and wipe out everybody who's bad. For some reason, God gives us that opportunity to work in such a way that we can become people who honor God with our actions that are incombustible. But there's one more thing. As they say on the infomercial, there's more. And one of the things that Jesus is doing, I think, is telling the women, you got it wrong, you're the victims, not me, and it's going to be really bad for you. But secondly, tell them, but there is something you can do. Maybe you can intercept with your children now. But then there's this third thing that he said. He said, one day you're going to say, Blessed are the women who never gave birth. (laughs) To a Jewish woman, that is sheer lunacy. There is no greater curse for a woman than not to be able to bear children. One of the ways your name goes on in history is by having kids. And so Abraham's wife Sarah is distressed that she has no children. Rachel and Leah are stressed and distressed because they have no children. Then in the Older Testament, there's a priest named Eli, and the woman comes and sobs before him as she begs God to give her a child. She's sobbing so much, he thinks she's drunk. Her name is Hannah, and she knows what a curse it is not to have children. But notice what Jesus says. One day, women, he said, this thing's going to be reversed, and the curse will no longer be not having children, that will actually be the blessing. And I thought about that. Are there any other important curses in the Older Testament we might want to think about? There's one in Deuteronomy. If you want to look it up, you can find it. It says this, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Maybe Jesus is letting them know that what he's about to do, they will misunderstand. If they see it as a curse, because it's part of a reversal here, that this death is actually going to be a blessing to many. I'm reminded of something really strange that happened in the Older Testament. Uh, Aaron is a priest. And like some religious leaders, certainly nobody around here, but some religious leaders, he ran into opposition. And basically, God got tired of the opposition one day, and he said, look, I'm tired of y'all doing this to Aaron. So what I want is every family, to uh, all the 12 tribes, each of the 12 tribes, to bring a dry piece of wood called a staff, and we're going to put it here in this tent. 
And whichever staff buds in the morning will be the staff of the family that God says is to be the priest. So all 12 tribes bring their staff. And sure enough, the next morning, only one blossoms. It not only buds, it has almonds on it. And it's the staff of Aaron. And then God says something really weird. God said, I want you to take the staff of Aaron that is budded with the almonds, and I want you to put it in the ark. Remember the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Put it in the ark. Put it in there with the Ten Commandments. Put it in there with manna from heaven. I want you to put this dry piece of wood that's blossomed. And I'm thinking, why would you do that? The Ten Commandments I get. The manna... I get God provides for us and feeds us, but the staff, is it to teach them not to complain that God knows what God is doing? Maybe. Is it so they see the power of God that can, who can bring life out of death? Probably. And is God maybe giving them a hint for all time that you think the dry wood is a curse? One day you'll realize the dry wood will bud And it will be a blessing. Maybe Jesus is telling the women this. The very things you think are most dead in your life may not be as dead as you think. The very things that you think right now are the worst curse possible may actually turn out to be a blessing. Maybe, just maybe Jesus is reminding them that even though he's facing death, what the women are facing in the long run because of him will be life.